I'm going to read again from 2 Samuel in the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 26. Second Samuel 13 at verse 26, and I'm going to read a few verses here and then skip to a few more toward the end of the chapter. I'd like to ask Mark Lawrence if he would pray God's blessing upon the word proclaimed. Second Samuel chapter 13 at verse 26. Then said Absalom, if not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with me. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him, and he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And Absalom commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. Down to verse 34. But Absalom fled. And the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came much people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, the king's sons are come. As thy servant said, so it is. And it came to pass as soon as he had made an end of speaking, that behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very sore. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihur, king of Geshur. Let us pray.
Amen. Well, we've already looked at the fact that through Nathan, God told David that the sword would not depart from his house. And now if we can use some vernacular, the beat goes on. The chastening continues. The chastening hand of God continues to bear not the sword in vain. David had used the sword of the Ammonites to slay his faithful soldier servant Uriah. And really, why should it seem strange to us that God would use the sword in the hands of the sons of David to chasten his servant David? That really shouldn't seem so strange to us. If David is willing to use the sword of others, the swords of others, to carry out his designs to see the death of Uriah in order to try to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Why should it seem strange at all that God would use, would choose a sword in the hands of David's own sons to bring about this chastening that was also promised to David? In fact, in those words, again, the sword shall not depart from thy house. He may have thought that he hadn't seen the sword as yet, but if we consider the sword metaphorical of death, he's seen it in the death of that child, that infant that Bathsheba had born to him. And really and truly he saw it in the death, as it were, of Tamar through the wickedness of her half-brother Amnon. She went after that incident. She went with her head covered in her garment that testified of her virginity, her purity, rent in two. She went weeping and wailing to her brother Absalom's house where she remained, as far as we know, the rest of her days. She became something of a widow. There was death brought upon her in that respect, in that sense. But here we see the sword literally following Amnon in the design of his half-brother Absalom. We see the sword, and it's even many swords, even as many swords were used to slay Uriah, so many swords were used to slay Amnon. The picture that we see in those words sound almost like and remind us almost of the death of Julius Caesar with those senators gathered around him and somebody saying, smite him perhaps, and they all began to take their part in the assassination of Julius Caesar, even Brutus, of course. But the sword was employed. God's word will not return unto him void. He promised that the sword would not depart. But Amnon truly was worthy of death, even though it was a brutal assassination, a terrible wickedness on the part of his half-brother Absalom. Amnon indeed was worthy of death. If we look at Deuteronomy 22, 
we'll have that borne out for us. Deuteronomy 22. Listen to what we read at verse 25. <clears throat> but if the man find the damsel that is betrothed in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the field, the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. And of course, if a damsel is found that's a virgin in the next verse that is not betrothed, similarly is the sentence pronounced on the one that abuses her. The key seems to be that if she cries, and we wonder as we reflect back on Dinah and the abuse that she suffered if she had actually cried out, but I think it's quite clear that Tamar did cry out. And even more importantly, perhaps, she cried unto her own half-brother, Amnon. She cried unto him, don't do this wickedness. She cried unto him, and he ignored her, and surely he is worthy of death. And he is worthy of this death that he suffered through the plot of Absalom. He is worthy of that. He was worthy of that death. And if we are candid, maybe not all of us, but most of us, I believe, including myself, if we are candid, we feel somehow, don't we, in our thoughts, in our hearts maybe even, that Absalom was justified in this action. Amnon was worthy of death. And we feel very much sympathy for what Absalom did. That may sound on the surface terrible to you. But read this again and again and consider the entirety of the account and see if you don't feel some sympathy for Absalom and his behavior. I believe that we could probably admit that we have all had the vigilante urge. Have we not? Maybe I'm the only one that's willing to admit that. Do we not tire of criminals being let off the hook by foolish jurors, by idiot prosecutors, by unjust judges, by plea bargains. Do we not tire of that? And even when we see someone convicted of a heinous crime, a terrible, wicked murder of a person or maybe multiple persons, we hear of about 15 years later, after nobody even knows or remembers what the person is on death row for, we hear of pleas to stop their execution. And even if they are finally executed, they've had 15 more years of their life than their victims. Do we not tire of hearing these things? Murderers not being held accountable. 
It's clear in Scripture. It's clear. God has said that the one who sheds man's blood, that his blood should be shed. Maybe that's the only Scripture Absalom read. And he was going to see to it that Amnon paid the penalty for what he had done to Tamar. We see so often this mandate ignored. And while the majority of our populace perhaps doesn't profess faith in God through Christ, they nonetheless seem to be behaving on this principle that so much of the liberal church embraces that God is love. And the victim is entirely forgotten. The victim is completely forgotten. We consider the inconsistency of one of the largest churches on earth, one of the largest professing Christian churches on earth, their inconsistency with being opposed to the death penalty and forgetting the victim. And yet, the very wisely in our view will refuse to accept the argument that the mother, in the case of abortion, that the mother is the victim. And they have concern for the child in her womb who is indeed the victim of abortion. And yet they don't get it right with capital punishment. And they pander the murderer and they totally ignore the victim. They're forgotten. And they're forgetting what God has said should be done to that murderer. But because of all these things, do we not, again I say, tire of all this? Tire of this lack of proper justice? Does it not tear at something inside of us to hear of a person finally being found guilty of a crime and then sitting in jail, as I said, all those years? And many of them having their sentences commuted or having their sentences changed. And many of those even being let out of prison because they've already served enough time, turning murderers loose. It's not difficult under those circumstances and with those thoughts to have some sympathy with Absalom's actions, with his behavior. Where's the justice in this when murderers are turned loose and there's no punishment for their terrible crime? It is really surprising to me that there haven't been more Absaloms in our society. We seldom hear of anyone taking vengeance for the murder of a relative. Maybe it's because of the incredible security. It's probably the peer pressure of society, more likely. We seldom hear of that. And I am not defending vigilante behavior. Please understand that I'm not defending out of hand vigilante behavior. I'm only saying that don't we sympathize with Absalom here? Don't we sympathize even as I've mentioned about these unjust judges? Was David not an unjust judge? Did he do what he was supposed to do about Amnon? Amnon's terrible wickedness. Was he not supposed to do something? Can we not sympathize 
with Absalom's frustration and waiting two years and David has done nothing. Nothing. And as far as we can tell from the scriptures, Amnon's just going on while Tamar is in seclusion in Absalom's house, suffering the fate of a widow, one who has been abused. And Amnon goes on Happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Not being held accountable for his behavior. Absalom must have felt terribly frustrated after waiting so long to see his father do something. And it's no wonder, really it's no wonder that he behaved the way he did. Again, it was wrong, it was wicked, it was murder. But can't we... Sympathize, can't we understand something of it? That frustration. One writer says, when the hands of the law fail to pursue justice, the aggrieved will take the law into their hands and perpetrate even greater injustice in the name of justice itself. I agree with that. Absalom perpetrated even greater injustice, and yet I can understand his frustration. David once again dropped the ball. David once again failed. David once again pampering and pandering his sons. Failed to do his duty. Failed in his responsibility. We've been rather hard on David. We've been hard on David and I think it's warranted. Even though it hurts, even though it breaks my heart to be hard on him. And perhaps it raises a question in your mind about David. How is it, just how is it that David may be called by God a man after his own heart. How can David be called a man after God's own heart and sin these terrible sins? Do this terrible wickedness? Be guilty of such folly and failure and negligence? Is God like that? How can we call David? How can God call David a man after his own heart? But that's what he did in 1 Samuel 13, 14, telling Samuel that he looks for a man. He seeks a man after his own heart. He's thought of that so often. And he's also thought of that, of that great giant killer. And he's thought just as much as his being the sweet psalmist of Israel. In 2 Samuel 23, 1. And just as frequently as he is thought of as the king of Israel. Just as frequently he is thought of as the king of Israel. So here's this man after God's own heart. Here's this giant killer. The only one in the entire army of Saul. Who had faith in God to go out and face Goliath. The only one who meets the requirements of a holy and righteous God to be his king in Israel. 
to be the sweet psalmist in Israel. How can these things be? How can they be? How is it possible that this sinner, this wicked sinner, this one who has no apparent control over his flesh, can be thought of in this way? Hebrews 11 provides us something of an answer, does it not? When we consider Hebrews 11, what do we see in there? That catalog of the faithful as it's thought of and as it is. But think about these folks, these men, these saints that are referred to. Were they perfect? Were they perfect? And yet there they are in this list, in this catalog. We read by faith in verse 31, Rahab the harlot perished not, having received the spies with peace. Yes, he, God still calls her the harlot, but he doesn't talk about her wickedness. He doesn't mention it. And the preacher to the Hebrews says in verse, verse 32, And what shall I more say? For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon. Read that account about Gideon and see what a wonderful saint he was. Barak, he wouldn't even come to the front until Deborah embarrassed him and shamed him to come and lead the army of Israel. Samson, how much do we need to say about Samson? And yet, here he is. And frankly, if he wasn't here, We'd still be wondering about Samson, would we not? Jephthah. Now there's a character. Read some of these and ask why are they in this list? And then of course David himself in this list. And Samuel. Samuel followed somewhat the sin of Eli in pandering to his son. And that was the, the humanistic cause of the people saying, we don't want your sons to rule over us when you die. We want a king like the other nations. These men were not perfect. They were not perfect at all. They were far from it. As we mentioned about Samson, many of them would raise questions in our thinking about how they could be there if it were not for their being there. But what about David? How is it that this can be a man after God's own heart? This man given to such terrible, terrible wickedness. Well, if you want to turn with me in 1 Kings, let me read something to you that's rather amazing in 1 Kings 15. I read it myself perhaps more often than others because David being my namesake or my being his namesake, whichever way you want to look at it. But listen to this. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat began Abijam to reign over Judah. Three years reigned he in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. And his heart was not, listen, his heart was not perfect with Jehovah, his God, as the heart of David, his father. 
David's heart was perfect before Jehovah, with Jehovah his God. Nevertheless, for David's sake, did Jehovah his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem. That is referring to Abijam again. To set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Why was he willing to do that? Because David did that which was right in the eyes of Jehovah. Not every once in a while. That's not what it says. He did that which was right in the eyes of Jehovah and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him. Really? All the days of his life? Really? Is that the same David that's being spoken of? And then he says, save or accept only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. How can it be? How can that possibly be? David did that which was right. And, and he never turned aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life. How can that be? The blessedness, I believe, of this, putting these things together, the blessedness for us here is that God is not looking at David. God is not looking at Jephthah or Samson or Gideon. He's not looking at these men, these people, through our eyes. Praise God that he doesn't do that. He's looking at them through his eyes. And we might say, if it's not irreverent to say, that he's looking through his eyes, through glasses tinted with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God. Slain from before the foundation of the world. How is it that these things aren't mentioned? How is it that God doesn't seem to be aware of them? Or that he's forgotten them? Has he forgotten the sinful behavior of David and these others? Did he, did he, wasn't he aware of it? The scriptures tell us and in the Psalms and in the prophets that God, our merciful Father, will take our sins and will cast them into the depths of the sea. But doesn't Psalm 139 tell us that he's everywhere? <laughs> Even if I go down to the grave, you'll see me there. Even if I go ascend into the heavens, you'll see me there. Is there any place that God isn't? How is it that he can cast our sins into the depths of the sea? And that means he doesn't see them. We're told also in the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west. So far as he removed our sins from us. How far? Tell me how far is the east from the west? That's how far God has removed our sins from him. From himself. He's taken them away. He doesn't look at them anymore. It's as though they were in the depths of the sea. From our perspective, it's as though they were as far away as the east is. From the west. He puts them behind his back, we're told. Now, if we put something behind our back, we can't see it. 
can we? And that's what God tells us, that he puts them behind his back. What happens then to his omniscience? That he knows everything. What happens to his omnipresence? That he's everywhere. How are these things? How can these things be? But I believe the meaning of these metaphors, these figures, is for us and our understanding and our blessedness in Christ. I believe it means that God will never charge us again with these sins. It's as though they're in the depths of the sea. It's as though they were as far away as the east is from the west. As though they were behind his back because he will never bring them up to us again. He will never charge us with them again. Our conscience may bring them up. I believe it will. But it may and perhaps will. But our Father in heaven will not bring them up to us again. He will not confront us with them. He will not ever say like men would say, Oh, I remember you. I remember what you did. I saw what you did. God has put them away in his beautiful language into the depths of the sea and behind his back. He has put them away. He will never bring them up to us again. He will not because his son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has borne them away in his own body, in his, through his own blood. He bore them away at Calvary. And when God looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't see those things because he has chosen not to see them because of his love for his son and because of his love through his son for us. He does not see them. It's another one of those mysteries, but I'm saying he does not see them because he has chosen not to see them anymore. Jesus Christ shall see of the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. Would he be satisfied if his father was confronting his people with these things again and again? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. And Paul has put all this very well when he raises that question in Romans 8. Who? Just who? Who shall lay a charge against God's elect? Who? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Will he not freely give us all things? Yes, Paul says. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. God can do as he pleases. He can blind himself to these things that have been forgiven because of his son's willing and loving death. I'm not diminishing God's omniscience. Please understand that. And I've already said it's a mystery, but I believe that what the teaching of Scripture is, that God has put these things away. And they will never be brought up to us, not by him, 
perhaps by our make-believe friends, perhaps by our make-believe family, perhaps by former acquaintances, but not by God. He said he won't. He has cast them into the depths of the sea. Praise God for his mercy and his love. How can these things be? I don't really know. And if I can say this without being irreverent, I don't really care except as long as it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> this act of Absalom was, the result was it not of righteous anger? This hatred that Absalom maintained for two years in his heart. I believe that we can relate to that, but let us relate even more importantly to what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and how he has been willing, willing to chastise. And I've already brought out the distinction between chastisement and punishment. He chastens us and praise God that he does. Otherwise, we would be bastards and not sons. The preacher in Hebrews teaches us, repeating from the Old Testament, quoting from the Old Testament, we would be bastards if our father did not chastise us. He chastens us because he loves us. He chastened David because he loved him. He loved him because he was in Jesus Christ. What a glorious gospel we are able to proclaim. What a glorious gospel we are able to proclaim. And how this should uphold us. Recognizing and apprehending, laying hold, embracing these promises of God. That when he said he had cast away our sins, he meant it and he's done it. And Christ has made it possible for him to do it. We can't measure the love of God in giving us His only begotten Son. We can't measure the love of Christ in coming to earth. People have come up with analogies that are foolish, trying to, trying to come up with an analogy for the omnipotent, for the omniscient, for the absolutely holy second person of the Trinity to come to earth and to take upon himself our flesh to be the God-man for us. God manifested in the flesh. Silly, foolish analogies that aren't really analogies. There isn't an analogy possible. And yet Christ has loved us from before the foundation of the world. He left his Father's throne we saw last week. When we glanced at Proverbs 8, how that he was happily in his father's bosom when all these things were done, and he left for us. And he put up with us for those 33 years as a man on earth, witnessing firsthand all our sinfulness and all our dirt and filth and evil putting up with it, putting up with the name-calling, 
putting up with the mocking and scourging at Golgotha from those soldiers and from those servants of the high priest and so on. Can you imagine whether the man was converted or not? Can you imagine the soldier or the servant that slapped the Son of God on the face? <laughs> did we did we not at one time in our life slap the Son of God in the face? Oh, thank God if you were converted in such youth that you never did that. Many of us did that. Turned our back upon God, turned our back upon Christ, spit in his face like those people. And we can read about that and forget about ourselves. God forbid. It should engender such thanksgiving and praise that Christ didn't turn that around on us. But rather than that, he went with his face steadfastly set for Jerusalem, knowing how he was going to be treated, knowing that he was going to be nailed to a cross, knowing that he was going to be whipped and beaten with scourges to the point where he didn't even look like a man anymore, and lifted up, lifted up that he might draw us to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, praise God with me for this so great salvation. The one who took upon himself our sin. I don't know how that works either. All I know is that God has given me and has given us, many of us, the precious gift of faith that we believe what says in here and that we believe and we know because of that that God laid our sins upon his son and that he bore them away. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. <coughs> our Father and our God, may our lives translate into living praise. We can't do that apart from thee. But we pray that thou would help us and enable us to do that through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God himself. For thy glory, for the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please for the benediction from Hebrews. Now the God of peace who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, make you perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.